Do you think MJ would have cared about the in-season tournament? Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 92, in honor of, I believe, the baddest man who ever played professional football, James Harrison, once a teammate of mine on Undisputed, and I do miss you, man. Bad man. This, as always, is the un-undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the two and a half hours of Undisputed. Today, episode 92, I will tell you why my Dak jersey stayed in the trash and is gone forever. Today, I will tell you why Sunday night's Eagles-Cowboy game was the least stressful Big Cowboy game I have ever watched. I will also tell you why I would still like to abolish field goal kicking in pro and college football, even though my young Cowboy kicker has made 30 of his first 30 field goals. I'll also tell you why Michael Jordan, my guy, would have won any and every in-season tournament he would have ever played in and why he never, ever, ever would have allowed the Chicago Bulls to raise a banner for any of those. And finally, I'll tell you about my history, my backstory with Chris Everett, who is now battling cancer again. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. We start with a question from you. This one from Graham from Beloit, Wisconsin. The Dak jersey is out of the trash can, right? No, Graham, it is not. That jersey went to waste management heaven, or maybe hell, I don't know. That's beyond me, beyond my comprehension. One or the other, it was left in my trash can back on that fateful October night upon which my Dallas Cowboys lost at San Francisco 42-10. to Dak Prescott threw three second-half interceptions. That jersey stayed where it belonged in the trash, which was taken out. That was the third straight loss for my Dallas Cowboys and Dak Prescott to the San Francisco 49ers. That after losing at Arizona to Joshua Dobbs. Come on, Dak. At that moment, that night, I was so done with Dak, and in some ways, I still am. I know, I know. 
I know what's happening right before our very eyes. But just let me allow myself to, to go here. Let me explain to you the backstory of Dak on Undisputed. I'm now in my big second round of hearing how live on air, day after day, you got to pay the man, got to pay him. I went through it for, it's felt like years with Shannon Sharp, my previous partner. Got to pay him. Got to pay this man. No, I don't. We don't. Jerry does not have to pay this man yet. It is now time for Dak Prescott to earn that potential upcoming money to earn his way back into our trust because Sunday night against Philadelphia was merely step one of six or seven steps upcoming in the next couple of months. Something magical, mystical happened after 42 to 10. I give you that. Up from those ashes, we rose. Dak Prescott had a rebirth. He had a reawakening. And we actually began to return to prominence because of Dak Prescott. Greatest stretch of his career has been these last eight games since that thing, that October night at San Francisco. Eight games, Dak is completing 69% of his passes, averaging 306 per game. Over the last eight games, Dak Prescott has thrown 23 touchdown passes to only two interceptions. He also has rushed for three touchdowns. Over that eight-game span, his 23 tops the NFL by seven, by seven. Next on the list is Brock Purdy over that span with 16. Dak has 23 to 16. Whew. Talk about crazy hot. You've seen it. I've seen it. I've often talked about it on Undisputed. All of a sudden, Dak has entered this serene new comfort zone featuring the sublime play calling of, I can't believe I'm saying this publicly, Mike McCarthy. It has become the Dak and Mac attack. Mike McCarthy, for three years, I wasn't even sure what he did as the head coach of my Dallas Cowboys. Now I know he can flat out call a game. Can Mike McCarthy once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away? He called plays for Aaron Rodgers all the way to Jerry World and a Super Bowl championship. Once upon a time, he was regarded, I was often told, best play caller in all of football. Is he now? Kyle Shanahan would have something to say about that. But the point is, Dak Prescott looks like a new man. Can we completely trust it? 
I'm going to be honest, painfully so. As great as he was in the first half the other night against Philadelphia, he did wobble in the second half. He was the first to say after the game, immediately, I could have played much better. And if I had played better, we would have scored 50. And they would have scored 50 if he had been a little sharper. You saw it. It's just a little off here and there. Wobbled in the third and the fourth quarter. Didn't really matter because they were up 24 to 6 at halftime. You can say I'm nitpicking, but I saw two throws in the second half that should have been intercepted and were not. They were dropped interceptions. We all know he did finally lose his first fumble of the year. Got a little careless with the football. Fletcher Cox dislodged it. It got scooped. It got scored. Philly scored only 13 points. So if you gave him seven, that means Jalen Hurts offense scored three plus three, two field goals. That's it. I'll take it. My defense rose up and shone. But did it give me a little pause in the second half? Did that little voice in the back of my head say, careful, careful? Yep, it did. The point is, the Dallas Cowboys season is just getting started. We now go to Buffalo, then we go to Miami, we deal with Detroit, and we wind up at Washington against our arch division rival, our historical rival at Washington to end the regular season. I believe it's going to be a December to remember. I believe my Cowboys right here, right now, given their health, I knock on whatever wood I have to knock on here, given health, which always dictates the outcome of every Super Bowl, Given health, my team is good enough to win out, as in beat the Bills, beat the Dolphins, beat the Lions, beat the Commanders. Win out. My eye test, my soul test tells me it's good enough. It has found itself. It has been reborn right before your very eyes after Arizona and post San Francisco. My defense is ranked fourth in points allowed. Two field goals. All Jalen Hurts got was two field goals. Interesting. What if we do win out? What if the Eagles somehow manage to lose up in Seattle next Monday night? Not sure whether Geno's going to play or not. But what if he does? What if the Eagles lose again a third straight game? Heck, what if the Eagles lose one of the two games they have left with Tommy DeVito, division rival, Giants. Could they lose one of them at Giants? Sure they could. What if, I'm just throwing this out, what if San Francisco somehow loses, albeit at home, on Christmas night to the team I picked to win the AFC, Lamar's Ravens? What if? Hmm. What if the Cowboys wind up with two home games to get to Las Vegas and this season's Super Bowl? Two home games. Huh. That would be interesting because what if the Cowboys go into a first home playoff game 
having won 16 straight at home. That would include beating Detroit at home down the stretch of the regular season. What if 16 in a row at home? What if it becomes 17 and 18 in a row at home? What if? What if Dak Prescott winds up winning regular season MVP? Highly possible. He's favored as we speak. Barely over Brock Purdy, but favored. What if he does wind up winning 18 in a row at home? Which would include winning the two playoff games at home. Heck, what if my preseason prediction for this season's Super Bowl pans completely out? What if it is? Cowboys versus Ravens in the Super Bowl. I did pick the Ravens to win it all over the Cowboys, but I at least had Dallas going to the Super Bowl, getting to the Super Bowl. If that happens, now you can pay the man. The Super Bowl door to me is wide open for Rain Dakota Prescott. The light is green for Dak Prescott. The stars feel like they're aligning for Dak Prescott. Now he has every opportunity to right all the past wrongs, and there have been too many for me to detail at this sitting. What if he does somehow manage to beat five or six more Legit good teams. Dallas has never beaten anybody. They, they haven't beaten it. Well, we, we did beat Seattle. And then we really beat the stuffing out of the Eagles. I think they were legit good teams. What if Dak Prescott beats five or six more really good teams and earns the right to be paid once again as the richest quarterback in the NFL. Am I ready to pay him right here, right now, as Keyshawn demands that I do? No. Am I ready right here, right now, to buy a new Dak jersey? Listen, trust me, no, 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 no. This is my two cents, my armchair psychiatrist point of view, but my man Keyshawn Johnson on Undisputed, is pushing to get Dak paid for the very same reason that my man Shannon Sharp, my former partner, pushed for Dak to get paid the last time he was up to be paid. They both want to see my Cowboys mired in mediocrity. They want me and us and Cowboy Nation stuck long-term with Dak because they don't trust Dak Prescott. I believe that deep down, Keyshawn believes that something is missing in Dak, and he has hinted at that. He has danced around that many times on the air. And he went full force into that after my Cowboys lost at Arizona and especially that Sunday night 42 to 10 thing at San Francisco. I don't think Keyshawn trusts Dak at all, which is why he's goading me 
to pay the man, goading Jerry to pay the man. Who's going to be better? Too early to tell. Let's see what we're about to see. I feel really good about it, but I haven't seen it yet. Only step one, only the Eagles, only this past Sunday night. A game I guaranteed Dak and company would win. I believe this year and this team is just different. It looks different. It feels different. I've been telling you that for weeks. It smells different in a good way. I like the cologne this team is wearing. It doesn't stink. This team, as my man Stephen A. has always said, is not an accident waiting to happen. This team, as Shannon Sharp always told me, will not do cowboy things, as in bad things at the worst possible times. This team will not fall on its face masks. For the first time in 28 years, this team will not get exposed as late-season frauds. But obviously, now it's time for Dak to rise above this team's 28-year history. It's been 28 years since we last even made it to an NFC Championship game, let alone a Super Bowl, which we won 28 years ago. Thanks to Michael Irvin, my man Michael, and Troy, and Emmett, and Dion in Phoenix actually in Tempe, over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Dak now has to rise above his own eight-year history as well as that 28-year history. He is two and four in the postseason. Not good enough. I've said it many times on Undisputed to Keyshawn, to Richard Sherman. You guys don't understand. I fell hard for this team when I was 10 years of age. It's a long time ago. I have lived and often died with this team. Not literally, but I felt like I had. I know Dandy Don Meredith. I know how great he was. They got to the threshold a few times with Dandy Don. Couldn't get quite over the threshold. But he was really good. He was better than Dak has been so far. Roger Staubach, to me, was simply the greatest Cowboy quarterback ever. I got to know him personally very well. I got to compete against him. A lot of basketball games. Bloodbaths, so to speak. I know Roger. I idolize everything Roger is and was, Dak ain't Roger. I know Troy Aikman. I love Troy Aikman. I believe in Troy Aikman. To use the old cliche, Dak can't carry Troy's jockstrap. Not yet. Maybe in a little while. We're getting closer to the opportunities to prove 
who you really are and what your legacy forever and ever will really be. Just remember, it was just two years ago, San Francisco at Dallas with Jimmy G at quarterback. Cowboys favored in that game. I forget what it was by four or five points. We lost 23 to 17. Dak pretty much stunk in the game. We weren't ready to play on either offense or defense, but Dak's QBR was 32 on a scale zero to 100. Not good. One touchdown, one interception. And if you remember what happened at the end of the game, we had one last hurrah, a pass and a prayer, but Dak took off running and he ran and he ran and he ran and he did not have the presence to get down in time for the trailing referee to have time to spot the football and get off one last snap. He ran 17 yards when he should have run 10 or 12 yards and gotten down, and he did not get down in time, even though it was about to be first and 10 at the 24, San Francisco's 24. One shot to the end zone from 24 yards away. You pull it off, we're having a whole different conversation right now because it's 24 to 23 Dallas. But no, ball doesn't get spotted, time runs out. Do I have to remind you? Less than a year ago, out in San Francisco, playoff game. My defense rose up against Brock Purdy and Christian McCaffrey and Debo and Ayuk and on and on and on. Rose up, held him to 19 points at home. Should have been good enough to win the game, but Dak stunk through two first-half interceptions. Missed four or five open receivers in the second half that could have changed the game completely. It wound up 19 to 12. If you still have a tape of it, go look at what happened in the final Cowboy possession. First and 10 at their 24. Michael Gallup coming off knee injury had been shell of self. I I don't know what inspired him, lit his fire, but he ran past everybody in the secondary. He was gone, gone. Dak underthrew him by five yards and missed him wide right by six or seven yards. Just uncatchable. He was gone. You you hit him on the fly. We're having a very different conversation right now. 42 to 10 it was back in October in San Francisco. Three second half interceptions thrown by Dak. But the play that sticks in my craw was It was 21 to 7 late in the first half, 50 seconds left. It was first and 10, Cowboys at their 25. Brandon Cooks, we weren't sure what Brandon Cooks was going to be yet. He hadn't sort of found himself, found his rhythm, gotten his legs underneath him. He bolts up the left sideline. If you have the tape, go back and look at it. He is gone, gone. He's five yards clear of any defender. If Dak hits him in stride in the hands, it's 21 to 14 at halftime, and it feels completely different. Dak missed him so wide right, he threw the ball out of bounds. The ball landed five, six yards left of the boundary out of bounds. You just can't do it. If you get one of those, you have to cash it. 
They don't come very often against that defense. Second half, three interceptions on three straight possessions. <sighs> Just hard to watch, hard to live with, hard to stomach, painful to talk about even now. But the point is, it's now time for Dak to show us. Step one completed in the bank, in the books. You wobble Dak, but you end up winning by 20, 33 to 13. Take it, love it, bank it. So back to Graham's question, Graham from Beloit, Wisconsin. The happiest day of my sports watching life would be purchasing a new number four Dallas Cowboy jersey because the Dallas Cowboys were heading to the Super Bowl. Here we go. Come on, Dak. Back it up. Another question from Ashton from Chicago. I once lived in Chicago for three years. Hello, Chicago. I actually spent a summer in Chicago while I was at Vanderbilt. Hello, Chicago. Ashton asks, how relaxed were you watching the game on Sunday? As in the Eagles game on Sunday night. Ashton I was as serene during that game as Dak has been serene in the pocket throwing the football. It was the most serene I have ever been watching a big Dallas Cowboy game. I told you last week on this show, I wasn't even sure I would try any lucky jersey the way I desperately, frantically tried them in the past. Four, 21. 11, 88. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I told you last week, I'm, I'm beyond that with this team. I, I don't need any good luck charms. I just know what I'm seeing. And last week I sat right in this chair and said exactly what I've said from day one of this football season. The Dallas Cowboys are just better than the Philadelphia Eagles. They should have won the game at Philadelphia. Dak threw for 173 yards in the fourth quarter alone. To Jalen Hurts, three yards in the fourth quarter, three yards passing. 173 to three. And as you've probably seen in our commercial, you got to stay in bounds. You got to stay in bounds. Dak stepped out of bounds on a two-point try that would have changed the the course and flow of the game. Just stepped out of a had it, could have waltzed into the end zone, but stepped out of bounds. Got to stay in bounds. My rookie tight end, Schoonmaker from Michigan, comes down one inch, knees one inch short of the goal line on a fourth down play. Fourth and goal, one inch short. Give me an inch here, an inch there, cash this, cash that. We win. Dak said right after the Philly game on live national TV on NBC, they stole that game from us. The Eagles stole that game. They did. 
Cowboys are just better than the Eagles. So I'm looking at my jersey collection. I'm thinking, I, I don't need a jersey tonight. I just went over to the drawer and I literally took potluck, as in pull the drawer open, whatever is on top, whatever t-shirts there, whatever shirts there, I'm just going to wear it. I have a blue t-shirt, short sleeve t-shirt. I bought, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago out in Palm Springs at PGA West, if you know, at the stadium course. It's a Pete Dye, diabolical monster of a course. Eats my lunch and my dinner. And if I've had breakfast, it'll eat my breakfast. But whatever, I bought the T-shirt to commemorate all the balls I hit in the water. And it just happened to be on top. So I put my PGA West shirt on, T-shirt on. And I will not wear it for the Buffalo game because it's not a good luck shirt. It's just a shirt. I just got to have something on. I will give you this. On Sunday night, I did scream bloody murder one time. And Hazel, our little Maltese, now seven years of age, who sleeps faithfully at my feet in her little bed, game after game after game, all day long, Saturday, Sunday, she sleeps and waits for her quote-unquote dad to finish with his damn football games. She raised her head when I screamed bloody murder and opened one eye and looked at me like, not again. But she really didn't flinch. She went right back to sleep. But the playing question came after we had taken the ball, the opening kickoff, and gone 75 yards in 10 plays. Remember the play Dak made, scrambling left, flipping it crossbody to CD, who just sort of waltzed into the end zone. Seven to nothing, Dallas. Here comes Philadelphia. But we push them back into a third and 16 at their 49 yard line. Remember this play? Jalen Hurts drops back, and I'm like, no, just don't let him out. Don't, don't let him out. And he stands strong in the pocket and he fires a rocket of a strike to Devontae Smith for 30 yards, 30 yards. Made it first and 10 at our 21. And I just couldn't believe we let him out of the third and 19 trap like that. Just felt like an omen, like a bad early sign. And I screamed some word I cannot repeat. but they get offensive pass interference on the next play, even though it was a 14-yard completion to Dallas Goddard, who's now back. Offensive pass, I'm thinking, okay, so now you're pushed back into first and 20 at the 31, and Jalen takes off, and he's running, he's running. I'm like, oh, my God, here we go again. Picks up 11 before, aha, Donovan Wilson strips him from behind. Ball's loose, Donovan Wilson recovers the fumble he forced, which became the story of the game. We stripped A.J. Brown. We stripped Devontae. Three big turnovers turned the tide. My defense can really play. I said before the year, we'll go as far as my oh Micah, 11 from heaven, our defense carry us. Well, now we've got an offense to match our defense, but our defense is really good. I know what Seattle did 
We were looking ahead to Philadelphia. Now it's time to play. I do trust my defense, maybe even more than I trust Dak in the offense at Buffalo, at Miami, Detroit, at Washington. I guaranteed a victory because that little voice in the back of my head, deep down in my depths of my psyche, whatever my football intuition is, said, you're just better than they are. 24 to 6 at halftime. Yeah, I was tweeting, don't take your foot off the gas. I, I got a little shook when Dak wobbled. Dak lost the fumble first of the year, scooped, scored. But I didn't feel threatened ever, not by Philadelphia. The defense kept shutting the door, slamming the door, taking the ball away. So I I will admit to you, my PGA West t-shirt, the underarms were pretty wet when the game finished. But Ashton, trust me on this. It was the least I've ever literally sweated during any big cowboy game I've ever watched since I was 10 years old. I was in my comfort zone. Sharing said comfort zone with Dak Prescott. Allow me to take a bit of a left turn. Allow me to tell you why I took it hard when I read the other day that Chris Everett's cancer has returned. No, please God, not again. It has returned. Now allow me to tell you my backstory with Chrissy. For those who don't know, who don't follow tennis and don't know tennis history, Chris Everett grew up in Fort Lauderdale, taught by her father. She went on 70s and 80s to win three Wimbledons, six U.S. Opens, seven French Opens, and threw in a couple of Australian Opens. 157 career titles did Christine Marie Everett win. It's a lot of titles. She dominated women's tennis, 1970s, 1980s. Dominated, owned, but she did not have a big serve. It was average at best. She wasn't especially athletic. Not all that quick, not all that fast. Chrissy dominated with her will, with with her supreme mental toughness, especially under the greatest pressure, 
at Wimbledon at the U.S. Open. She was the ice maiden. Never melted under fire. In the end, a bigger, stronger, faster Martina Navratilova figured out how to beat Chrissy. But trust me on this. I was there for a lot of it. Chrissy never beat herself. She was taught to play the right way by her father, and she was made of the strongest stuff. First big tennis tournament I ever covered. I, was, I didn't play tennis as a kid. In fact, just a quick story. I was a decent athlete. I lived to play baseball, lived to play basketball, played a lot of football, no hockey in Oklahoma City where I grew up. Tennis seemed like kind of a, I don't know, like a sissy game to me. I played a lot of golf, no tennis. People have asked me my whole life, you play tennis? Because I, I look like a tennis player, I guess. I'm built like a tennis player. I tried one time. I must have been 12, maybe. Summers at our grade school. It's called Mayfair Elementary. They had what was called a play school where the park departments put on a, a daily sort of in the cafeteria. You could just go in and play ping pong. They had softball tournaments. They had various track meets type tournaments. And there was a tennis tournament. And the director of the summer play school asked me and a friend of mine named John Corey, would you guys represent us at the tennis tournament? And I said, I, I've never even held a tennis racket. Well, you, you could figure out it's tomorrow, but can you guys? And John said, well, my brother's got a tennis racket. I said, well, does he have two? And he said, I think my other brother has one. So we go back to John's house and we find two tennis rackets and a tennis ball. And we literally go out in the street in front of John's house without a net. And we hit the ball gently back and forth to each other until I finally said, okay, I got this. There's no net. I don't got anything. So I'm naive enough. I'm foolish enough to ride with the director all the way over to a park near downtown Oklahoma City. And I'm entered into the bracket of the tournament. And I play some kid from Nichols Hills, which is the rich section of Oklahoma City, who's Mr. Tennis, who's had lessons, and, and he's got the tennis bag over his shoulder. He's got the right tennis shoes. He, he's got the whole schmear. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I can just out-athlete him. And he steps up to serve, and he's got a rocket serve that, that I have little to no chance of returning. And then I try to serve to him. I've never even tried to serve over a net. I hit little patty cake, little puff serves, little wrist shots. Instead of tossing it up and coming over the top, trying to blast away, I'm hitting little patty cake serves back to him. And, and he's off one bounce, smashing it past me. I think it was best out of three sets. I, I didn't win a game. I got blown off the court. So that was my first and only experience. That's the only time in my life I've ever tried to play tennis. So 
I'm at the Los Angeles Times, not too far out of Vanderbilt University, and they end up sending me to New York to cover the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament of 1978, September. And in the women's final, it winds up being Chris Everett versus a 16-year-old named Pam Shriver. Ironically, Pam Shriver has become a close friend of mine because I often play golf with her at Brentwood Country Club here in Los Angeles, California. Pam Shriver can really play golf. She wins the women's tournaments at Brentwood year after year after year. But she's become a very good friend of mine, and I keep up somehow, sort of some way through Pam, I keep up with Chris because they're very close. Chris won that day, 7-5-6-4. Pam sort of held her own and was not embarrassed at age 16. But that was my tennis background. And yet, the first big story I ever wrote, this for the Miami Herald, a front page story, I was assigned because there was a big tennis tournament, men's and women's, in Fort Lauderdale in February. And the story had just broken that Chris Everett was dating or having a relationship with Jimmy Connors, the bad boy of tennis. I don't know if you remember Jimbo, but I couldn't imagine Chris and Jimmy, but they were a couple. They were definitely an item. And I definitely was assigned to write about it for page one, not for the sports page, for page one of the Herald, because she was Fort Lauderdale's and South Florida's darling. And he was the bad boy. It's a great story. No internet at that point. No, no way could it go viral. So all you had was the National Enquirer, but you had the Miami Herald. So I wrote the heck out of it about Chris Everett and Jimmy Connors for the Miami Herald. Wound up in Dallas, Texas, columnist at the Dallas Morning News. My first year there, 79, I got to interview Chris one-on-one before the Dallas women's tour stop. And because I was the columnist, I had enough cachet, I got a one-on-one with Chris. In a hotel suite, we sat for maybe 15 minutes talking. She was smart, she was funny, but she was a little distant and a little wary of me because I was a member of the enemy of the probing media. Sure, her father had taught her well not to give up much to the probing media. But so it was a couple of years later, I'm still in Dallas, and I began to date a woman named Nancy Nichols, who was the director of public relations for the women's basketball team in Dallas at that point, the Dallas Diamonds, who had the number one pick in the draft. And they took Nancy Lieberman out of Old Dominion, Lady Magic, as she was called. Nancy Lieberman could flat out play. Trust me. She was female showtime. I went to every game. I was mesmerized. 
because of my girlfriend, Nancy Nichols, Nancy Lieberman bought a home three doors down from mine in a gated community in Dallas, Texas. And soon after she moved in three doors down from me and Nancy Nichols, the PR director was with me, Nancy Lieberman went to a tennis tournament in Hilton Head, South Carolina and hit it off with Martina Navratilova. And back Martina came with Nancy Lieberman and wound up moving in with Nancy Lieberman three doors down from me. So now from the inside out, I am watching Nancy Lieberman turn drill sergeant and try to turn Martina Navratilova into an overpowering tennis machine that could finally overcome Chris Everett. Chris had dominated Martina more with her mind than her body, more with her tenacity, with her mental toughness, with her will than her athleticism. Martina had it all. She was bigger, stronger, faster, much more athletic. I used to play catch with Martina with a football. Could she ever throw a football left-handed? But she needed to be whipped into better shape, both physically and mentally. And Nancy Lieberman did that for her. And I witnessed it day after day, up close and personal. Nancy Lieberman tried to make Martina hate everything about Chrissy, the girl next door, America's darling. Martina, of course, was a Czech defector from Czechoslovakia. I love Martina. Got very close with her. She's got her issues. I got my issues. But trust me, she's got a big, great heart. Finally, with a lot of help from Nancy Lieberman, a lot of counseling, a lot of coaching, a lot of motivation, Martina began to overcome Chris. So my girlfriend at the time, Nancy Nichols, occasionally traveled with Nancy Lieberman and Martina to big tennis events such as Wimbledon, U.S. Open. So in 1982, I went to cover Wimbledon for the Dallas Times Herald. Nancy Nichols went with me and hung out with them literally backstage in the women's locker room. My Nancy would go during the day and hang with Chris and uh, with uh, Martina and Nancy Lieberman. And Chris would always be around and would try to be friendly with Martina. I, I thought Chris was just being a shrewd operator because she still wanted Martina to think they were best friends, very good friends. So she would have that edge over her. Oh, we're just friends. And then (laughs) on the court, Chris was a cold-blooded killer in a good way. But at one point, my girlfriend, Nancy Nichols, said, Chris approached her and said, hey, you date Skip Bayless? My Nancy said, yeah. And 
according to my Nancy, Chris Everett said, he is so cute. Okay, I don't love the word cute because in college I went on two blind dates because a female Vanderbilt student would tell me, oh, do I have the girl for you? She is so cute. And they so were not cute. So I don't really trust that word, but I appreciated that Chris Everett had said that about me. The truth is that was simply the single greatest compliment I've ever gotten in my life that Chris Everett would say I was cute. Now, for the record, I do not mind admitting this. I had a big crush on Chris. I thought she was alluring. I thought she had a sort of smoldering beauty about her, sort of a sultry sexiness about her. I I just thought she was hot. I'm just being honest. I did have a big crush on Chrissy. So for her to say I was cute made not just my day, my week, my month, it made my life. So a year or so passed, Nancy Nichols and I broke up. And the women's tennis tour came back to Dallas. And I set up a second interview with Chris. This one took place at Hockaday Girls School, private school in Dallas, on their indoor tennis court. is in February. And the weirdest thing happened. I was supposed to be there at X time, and they said, be prompt because she's a creature of habit. She's right on schedule. And so she was just finishing up her practice session with, I don't know if it was her coach or hitting partner, sort of her male sparring partner, not sure what it was. But I'm waiting sort of near the baseline, five or six feet off the baseline. And the male coach, whatever he was, hit a big overhand smash that blasted by her. And it hit me. Not sure what Dr. Freud would say about this. It hit me right in the you-know-whats and doubled me over. Males will attest. For about one minute, you think you're going to die. And then fairly quickly, it passes. But for that minute, it is the worst agony. So I thought I was going to die, but I was embarrassed, so I tried not to show that I thought I was going to die. But I did recover, and she was extremely apologetic, and we did sit down, and we did begin to talk, and we talked for an hour. And silly me, as my male ego took more and more over, I started to think, I think she likes me. So she had had her raging affair, whatever it was with Jimmy Connors. It had ended. She had married John Lloyd, but they had split. She had dated a pop rock star in Great Britain named Adam Faith. Doubt you remember him. He was a big deal and he was a stud. 
but that had ended. So all of a sudden, I'm single, she's single. And as we parted ways, I'm thinking, gee, should should I dare to, to ask her out? And then I thought, no, I don't want to put her on the spot to have to turn me down in my face. I don't want to have to put me on the spot to get turned down. So I thought, no, 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 just let it go. So I go home and I start to rethink it. And I wound up calling the director of publicity for the women's tour, whom I knew very well, thought I could trust. And I said, this is the craziest thing you've ever heard. This is a long shot at best because there's probably no shot to this because she lives in Fort Lauderdale and travels the world. And I write five columns a week for the Dallas, what was I, Dallas Times Herald at that point. But I asked, I said, would you please ask Chris if she would go out with me? The PR director said, I I would be glad to. And she seemed receptive to it. And I waited. A day passed. Second day passed. And I never heard back from her. But I guess I took my shot. So I saw Chris occasionally when I worked at ESPN and she happened to be up in Bristol for some function. We sat one afternoon there on campus at ESPN at the mothership. And she brought up the story and laughed about how that shot hit me in the you-know-whats just before we sat down to interview. She wound up marrying an Olympic skier named Andy Mill. They had three sons. He's another stud. She dated Greg Norman for a bit. She only dates leading men. Way out of my league. But still... She had ovarian cancer and she beat it. Now it's back. Chrissy, I've been thinking a lot about you. I've been praying for you. And I just want to say publicly, if you happen to hear this, if anybody anybody can beat this you can as mentally tough a competitor as ever there was this is Harrison from Plano Texas how can you still hate kicking after what Brandon Aubrey did. Well, Brandon Aubrey made four against the Eagles on Thursday night. One from 60, one from 59. Nobody had ever done that in the history of kicking in one game from that distance, two from that distance, 59 plus. But Harrison, you got to get your facts straight. I do hate place kicking as in field goal kicking which is exciting for all the wrong reasons. 
But I have said from the start, I will never get field goal kicking abolished in pro or college football. It is obviously here to stay. So if I were the owner of a pro football team, my highest priority would be getting the greatest kicker who ever kicked. I want the Vinatieri. I want the Justin Tucker. Heck, maybe I want the Brandon Aubrey. We lucked into that. Brandon Aubrey didn't even kick in high school or college. He was a soccer player from right there around Frisco, Texas, where the star is, where the headquarters are. Went to the USFL for a couple of years, figured it out. I'd never heard of him. Look at him now. 30 for his first 30 field goals. I just hope he doesn't become a 30 for 30 on ESPN, as in whatever happened to Brandon Aubrey. Will he miss one? I, you know, I hope he does. I hope he misses one that doesn't really matter in the next two, three games. Just hard. You don't want those demons to start rising up and screaming in your subconscious as you get to the playoff games. I mean, we lucked into Brandon Aubrey, and yet if I were an owner, I, I literally, I would, if if there were what appeared to be a great college kicker coming up, I would spend a first-round pick on him because it changes your life. Four or five games a year will be won or lost by the kicker, by the kicker who doesn't even play the game of football. That's what's wrong with it. These noble warriors battle their guts out for you know 59 minutes and 50 seconds, and then the little guy who doesn't play trots onto the field and lines up for this gimmicky kick between these two weird sort of big H uprights, and you have to kick it between the goalposts. What? Where, where did this come from? That's how you win and lose the game, by the little guy who doesn't even play football? Are you kidding me? I mean, obviously, in the very beginning, in the early stages of a pro football, at college football, they forced an every down player to figure out how to place kick. See Lou, the toe Groza, who was a very good defensive tackle for the Cleveland Browns. And he learned to kick straight on toe first. So he was the toe. I was pretty good kicking straight on, but I never have figured out the soccer style kick. And then here came the soccer kickers who with kicking off their instep, they can get more lift and more distance. And all of a sudden revolutionize the game because they became the most specialized specialist. I mean, Jay Feely used to argue with me that, well, I'm I'm actually the third string safety for the New York football giants. And I, Jay is a really good athlete, great golfer. I raced him one time. It's been a few years back, but we had a very competitive 40-yard dash. And then he tells me after he waxes me that he ran 4-6 for the giants. Four, a 4-6-4, four, four, that's what Emmett Smith ran before he was drafted. Jerry Rice ran 4-7, 4-6, trust me, for me, it's fast. So he got me by about, I don't know, he beat me by about five yards. I thought I was pretty fast, but I can't do that. But the point is, most of these kickers are not, they're not football. They, they could not play football. They couldn't do anything. Jay Feely would go down and actually tackle kick returners because he's, 
little wacky. I mean, he's like great wacky, fearless wacky. But the point is, I, I don't like the fact that, that little guys who don't play football decide football games. And first got me back, it was October 3rd of 1988. I'm covering a Cowboy game at New Orleans on a Monday night. And it comes down to Roger Ruzak, the Cowboy kicker, missed a field goal. a very makeable. It seemed like it was a 40-yard field goal. And then the great Morton Anderson, one of the greats, made one from 49 at the buzzer to win it 20-17. to 17. And I thought, it has come to this? Really? This is it? And I wrote a column the next day that if a Martian dropped in for a pro football game and were sitting next to me, and I finally said, who do you think the highest paid player on the field is? I think the Martian would shrug and say, well, that little guy who runs on and kicks the ball between the H, he's the most valuable player on the field because he, he decides the games. Yeah, he does. Way too often, he does. I mean, where would we have been the other night without those four cross-country field goals from Brandon Aubrey? So, again... I despise the concept of it because it's so weirdly gimmicky. I I would just do away with it because football would be still extremely edge of seat exciting if you just had to keep going for it. You could still punt. I I like punting. Punting is a, a real art. And most of the punters are way more athletic than the place kickers. Punters have to catch the long snap, sometimes run with it, sometimes, as we saw the other night, throw it. They're always good to very good athletes and the the sort of artful science of punting to the coffin corner, punting out of bounds, pinning opponents inside five or 10. I love that part of the game. I love the strategy of should I punt or go for it? But if you just keep going for it down the field until you score, and then when you do score, you go for two every time. It's football. That's how you win football games, by playing actual football with no gimmicky kicking. But my point is, I'm not going to get it abolished. I still hate it. It still, it it offends me. It it offends my sensibilities. I I love football and I hate field goal kicking, extra point kicking. It's, it's, It's beneath football to decide football games that way. Again, exciting for all the wrong reasons, but if I owned a team, I would go get the best kicker ever. And maybe Brandon Aubrey is on his way. Maybe we just lucked into him. So Harrison, yes, I still hate kicking even after what Brandon Aubrey did because we finally got a guy. I'm knocking on wood. We got a guy. I hate to even say we can trust, so I won't say it. I won't even say that we can trust. I'm going to leave that alone. This is Joshua from Miami, as in Florida. Do you think MJ would have cared about the in-season tournament? You know what he would have called it? I just used this word in my Chris Everett topic. Michael whom I covered, got to know in 1998, last dance season in Chicago. He would use the word cute in a very different way than Chrissy used it about me. He would use cute as derisive cute. 
he would have said, oh, they're going to make us play an in-season tournament? That's cute. That's what he would have said. He would have used it dismissively as, that's cute. Favorite word of his, cute, to dismiss and devalue. That's cute. And you know what he would have done? However many they would have played through his career, if they'd had this year after year, he would have won it every single year. That's just what he did. That's what he was made of. I have seen him bet enormous amounts of money on the golf course after practice in shooting games. I've told this story before, but quickly we were at Indiana for the conference final 98, went to game seven back at the United Center, the house that Michael built. But before one of the games in Indiana, they were having a practice. They let the media in late. We were kind of upstairs in the what was called Market Square Arena at that point. And I sit in the upper deck, sort of front row, and I watch this transpire. I watch Michael shooting free throws for money. I couldn't hear exactly how much money he was shooting them. Left-handed, blindfolded. I will bet you it was for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Trust me. Left-handed, blindfolded. And I got there just in time to see him swish one that sent all of his teammates rolling on the floor, like in awe and, and shock, you know, just, just rolling on the floor because he made left-handed, blindfolded free throw to win whatever the pot was. That's just who he was. He was the coldest-blooded basketball killer ever. It's why LeBron James is not in his league, not in his galaxy, not in his universe. Mental toughness, killer instinct. LeBron, one of the nicest guys who ever played, supremely gifted, not in Michael's universe when it comes to that killer instinct, competitive edge, cold-blooded basketball assassin, trash talker of the highest order, tell you what he's going to do to you and do it and destroy you. He would have terrorized the in-season tournament field because that's just what he does. He would have won it however many times he would have played in it. But here is the difference. Michael Jeffrey Jordan would have said to the Chicago Bulls, over my dead body, will you raise a banner for an in-season tournament? The Lakers are going to raise a banner. It's going to be different. It's going to be shaped different. It's going to be a different color, but they're still going to raise a banner. I don't like it. I appreciated that LeBron rallied his troops, kept them together, led them to win games that other teams weren't that serious about early on in the group play. They went 4-0 in their group. And then here they went, quarters, semis, and what a tour de force they were in that final against Indiana. Way to go, LeBron. You led them. You deserve the MVP. But the first thing out of your mouth should have been, that's it. That's over. That's behind us. It was cute. 
You could use that word if you wanted to borrow it. You borrowed his powder toss and his number. You might as well use his word. It was cute. It was nice. It was fun for a little while. Now back to the real world. Los Angeles Lakers don't win in December. They win in June. That should be all that matters. The message should have been back to business. No big champagne celebration in the locker room. Back to what really matters. That's how Michael would have dealt with it. That's cute, but it's over. We did what they made us do. We won their little tournament. They can make their money. They pay us some money. Raising the banner sends all the wrong message to the Los Angeles Lakers. Last question is from Tommy from Rockford, Illinois. What's the score of Cowboys 49ers matchup now? Asked Tommy from Rockford. I have said this on Undisputed several times, and I'm going to say it for the record right here, right now. As a Cowboy fan, lifelong diehard, I want San Francisco again, and I want them badly. I don't fear them. I don't want to avoid them. I welcome them back somewhere down the road in the playoffs. I would embrace it. I would savor it. I would cherish it. Home or away, maybe home. Because next time will be our time. I feel deeply, strongly about this. The third playoff time would be the charm for the Dallas Cowboys. I detailed how they beat us at Jerry World two years ago with Jimmy G, how they beat us with Brock Purdy last year, 19 to 12, only 19 to 12 at San Francisco. Playoff games, obviously the 42 to 10 thing happened earlier this year in the regular season, but I'm talking about playoffs. I'm talking about our next confrontation with them. We've had many confrontations with them before. Dwight Clark got us early 1983 following the 82 season when he rose up into the fog at Candlestick and snatched Joe Montana's attempted throwaway out of the sky. San Francisco 28 to 27. We got them after the 92 season, early 93 at Candlestick. We went in there as prohibitive underdogs, as the two young upstarts with Troy, Emmett, and Michael. And we did a number on Steve Young and Jerry Rice and company. We shocked them. We shocked the world. We probably even shocked most of Cowboy Nation. And we went on to bulldoze Buffalo in the Super Bowl for a breakthrough a year early because we did that at Candlestick. I want them again. Third time would be the charm. They did lose three in a row. I know they didn't have Debo. 
I know they didn't have Trent Williams. But they had everybody else. They had that MVP of a quarterback. They had leading rusher Christian McCaffrey. They had Ayuk. They, they, had, they had their weaponry. They had enough, and they lost three in a row. Lamar, I'm rooting for you on Christmas night at San Francisco. I need you. Come through for me. Because we, as in the Dallas Cowboys, have found ourselves since 42 to 10. We needed 42 to 10 to virtually strip us naked before the NFL world and force us to find our true selves. And we started to do that soon after that game. 15 in a row we've won at home. Dak over the last eight games, 23 touchdowns to only two interceptions. My defense held Jalen Hurts to two total field goals, two field goals. Remember a year ago, it was only 19 to 12 at San Francisco in a win or go home game. 21 to 19 was within our reach if our quarterback had just made one or two throws or not made one or two throws to them. 21 to 19. I'll go on record right here, right now. If we face them again, we will beat them 21 to 19 this time. It is our time. That's it for episode 92. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show every week.